0: Okay, it's the Christmas break at a New England prep school, and a grumpy teacher stays on campus to look after a small group of students without any holiday plans. He develops a unique connection with a clever yet troubled troublemaker in an unexpected twist. Alongside this, he forges a bond with a school's head cook, a grieving woman who recently lost her son in the Vietnam War. Now, this isn't reality TV. It's a movie I watched during Christmas, and I wanted to share it with you all. Welcome to That's Life, I Swear. This podcast is about life's happenings in this world that conjure up such words as intriguing, frightening, life-changing, inspiring, and more. I'm Rick Barron, your host. That said, here's the rest of this story. We all love a good movie, particularly a movie that doesn't seem to convey a must-see appeal about it. Movies that fit that category are called Sleepers, and The Holdovers fits that billing. I mean, it's like the Poet Society, or Love Actually. The Holdovers unfolds a poignant narrative, weaving together the lives of three complex individuals. Paul, Angus, and Mary, portrayed by the talented Paul Giamatti, Dominic Cissar, and Divine Joy Randolph. All three of these characters find themselves thrust into the barren confines of an empty boarding school during the fading days of 1970 now the individual who was the screenwriter for this movie was david hemmingson some of his other past work includes being a producer and a writer for whiskey calavera kitchen confidential don't trust the bee in apartment 23 that was a good one and just shoot me from my view the holdovers represents david's finest pieces of work interesting point about this movie before we get going is david took characteristics of people he knew and used them as guidance to build three main characters in the movie. During an interview, David shared his thoughts on how he weaved his parents' personas into the movie, along with someone else who gave him purpose to become a writer. As David started the conversation, he shared how his parents' divorce ended. He quickly amended his thought by saying ended was far too neat of a word. He altered the ending of his parents' marriage in a more descriptive set of words when he said, It exploded. I'll never know the particulars, but here's the easy-to-read version, he said. My dad couldn't stay put, and my mom couldn't let him go until she did, and doing so nearly destroyed her. At the time, his father was splitting time between teaching and shipping out as a merchant seaman. David's mother was working as many hours as she could as a registered nurse at Mount Sinai in Hartford, Connecticut. Even with child support, the family was always on an edge. A razor's edge, if you will. David's mom wanted to preserve some sense of normal life, so she took the day-break shift in the ICU the hospital, getting up at a quarter to four in the morning so she could be home in time to make David's dinner when he rolled back in from school. School was a challenge for David. I mean, what teenager doesn't go through that down the road. He found that period to be very awkward and scouted for him. It didn't help him being a young kid with ADHD, so the dynamics were quite challenging for him in the best of times and just got worse in the wake of his parents getting divorced. By the time middle school was approaching, he hit the brakes. I mean, he just stopped cold turkey. His mother would wake him up at dawn, feeding him breakfast, and make him promise not to go back to sleep. David promised his mom he wouldn't fall asleep while mentally crossing his fingers behind his back. He confessed that upon hearing his mom's car leave the driveway for work, he passed off another three hours sleeping away. He loved passing his time listening to Beatles records or just hopping into the bathtub and soaking until his hands got pruned. This deception continued for about a month until the school finally noticed his epic run of truancy. Something had to be done. Turns out that something came on the form... Of Earl Cahale, Earl was married to David's mother's older sister, Anne, and they lived on the lower east side of Manhattan. Now, David vaguely recalls hearing his mom over a hush phone call talking with Earl that was focused on "What are we going to do about David?" shortly thereafter that phone call, one Saturday morning, Earl was in their driveway, climbing out of his old Plymouth duster, mopping his brow and cursing the 120-mile drive from New York City. Little did he know that from that day forward, it was a drive Earl would make nearly every weekend over the next decade. Like his father, David left school to serve in World War II. But unlike David's father, Earl never went back to school. Instead, he took the route of job hopping, his way around the world in those post-war years, finally ending up as the United Nations Office of Public Information Manager. Now, Earl was just a little shy of six feet tall, pot-bellied, and bald, with jug-handle ears that supported a pair of thick, Buddy Holly glasses, Earl wouldn't be what you would call Hollywood's version of a boyhood hero. No, instead, David saw him as being ten times cooler than that. Earl intrigued David. He knew everything there was to know about books, music, dogs, chainsaws, shotguns, Chinese food. And profanity. Quite a laundry list to share. He spoke, swore, shot, and cooked like no other person he had ever seen. Earl taught David how to swing a hammer and draw a bow. He fed him the classics and the national lampoon, jazz, and rock and roll in equal measure. It was as if Earl wanted to share with David everything he came across in his life. David saw that one of the best things he liked being around Earl was that he didn't feel sorry for him. No, there was no pity pats on the head, quite the opposite. Earl told David that life would be constant lessons. One lesson is that life will not always give you a helping hand or even meet you halfway. In most cases, you just got a finger. Earl told David he was very lucky lucky that he had a mother who worked harder than was humanly possible to support him, lucky that he had a father who, although they were no longer close to one another, loved him deeply and worried about his welfare. Earl was always busy. That said, he hated laziness. So every waking moment, he and David spent time together doing all kinds of useful things. That being chores, or study, or some form of exercise, usually in the form of push-ups, leg lifts, pull-ups. All of which David would do while he was being supervised, usually with David standing by him with a scotch in hand. David shared how once a month on a Saturday morning, David would take him down to the Wethersfield Cove and row them out to the swift water of the Connecticut River. Now, waiting for the catfish to show an interest, he would tell David about his epic life. He described in vivid detail his years growing up in Gentile poverty, busting his ass on his family's rocky stretch of land, which he called it a stump farm. Summers where he sweated away working on the Black Ball ferry line. David was taken by Earl being such an open book. But not always. One time Earl talked about the nights when he was in Saipan as a scared GI, and he would be gripping his rifle and scanning the tree line while praying that the war would end soon. When David asked for more information about World War II, Earl got quiet and veered off to another topic. Not surprised Earl went silent about the war. Most vets do, and for good reason. Complex jobs, lean years, impossible adventures... Earl shared the unvarnished truth of his life with David. Language and storytelling became the great binding force between these two. Earl gave David inspiration with his storytelling, which is why he later became a writer. By sharing his background, insights, and his time, David felt Earl had rescued him from the overwhelming weight of his history. Earl guided David to such an extent that when the opportunity for a scholarship at Watkinson Prep School came his way, He no longer felt like the young kid concealed in the shadows. With Earl's hard-nosed demeanor and learning about life's sometimes tricky lessons, David felt transformed into an individual with a strong sense of discipline and self-esteem. He finally had a compass that pointed north. With everything they had shared together, it would be a fair guess that David saw a father figure in Earl. For the next few years, as David navigated his way through prep school, Earl guided him constantly and pushing him to achieve academically. When David's mother would come home from a weekend shift at the hospital, he'd make damn sure the dinner was on the table for her. One evening, as David's mom said goodnight, both he and Earl watched her climb the stairs to head to bed early to get ready for work the next day. Earl turned around and looked at David straight in the eye and said, David, be worthy of that. Deep in his heart, David knew he had to be. Short of that would mean he would have portrayed both of them. David reflected when it came time to write the screenplay. He explained how he weaved three people he knew into the main characters of the Holdovers. Paul Giamatti's character, the hard-nosed, unfriendly professor of ancient history, a man with a hard candy shell and a chewy caramel center, he channeled Earl, just as he channeled his mom's immense strength and heartache and love, into Mary. Angus would become a version of himself, a little older, but no less of an outsider, hungry for guidance and connection, loving a brilliant and mysterious father from a distance. David saw Earl as a tough guy, but noted he was ultimately a man of immense kindness who understood human frailty and forgave easily. Through the various jobs Earl had in his career, he gained an education about life that no Ivy League degree could ever offer. He was David's best friend, his Merlin, his savior. When he died in 94, he left David with three guiding principles. One, nothing comes free in this life, so nothing is without labor. Two, do the right thing and fear no man. And three, there is only one toast when you raise your glass. Love and beauty. Because those two words are the only words in this life that truly matter. What other philosophy do you need? What can we learn from this story? What's the takeaway? The whole ors approaches connection with genuine sincerity, emphasizing the potential for saving or assisting each other if we only take the time to listen. While the film boasts deceptive cleverness and humor, It also highlights directors' Payne's innate understanding of the impactful nature of silence. Paul Giarmani effectively delivers monologues on the significance of history, but the true essence of the movie lies in the central trio's shared glances and subtle gestures. Labeling this film as a Christmas movie may seem unusual, given its unexpected departure from the director's usual style, with past movies like Downsizing, The Descendants, And The Last Shift, the film embraces holiday elements with abundant decorations and the frequent inclusion of traditional carols in the soundtrack. The movie's theme captures the spirit of the season by portraying the need to belong to something greater, the sudden generosity inherent in human nature, and the simple ways in which we can touch each other's lives. In my book, The Holdovers is emerging as a potential new holiday classic. It's similar to the message from another beloved Christmas film offering a poignant reminder that no one is a failure who has friends. It's a wonderful life. Well, there you go, my friends. That's life, I swear. For further information regarding the material covered in this episode, I invite you to visit my website, which you can find on either Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, for show notes, calling out key pieces of content mentioned and the episode transcript. As always, I thank you for listening and your interest. Be sure to subscribe here or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you soon.